This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 36, China's Oceanic Rebirth. China's oceanic rebirth now leads the world in infrastructure investment, spinning vast new regional connections through high-speed railways, dams, tunnels, and ports. This huge initiative is clearly to China's political, strategic, and economic advantage. At home, it would help bring the lagging interior of the nation up to the advanced economic status of the coastal provinces. Abroad, it is bringing China a new presence. As a result of trade within the last couple of generations, many Chinese people have come to enjoy rising standards of living. Hundreds of millions have moved from desperate poverty to decent livelihood. But China has problems reflected in its economy and society. An ossified polity in a culture of corruption with public dissatisfaction expressing itself in rural violence and riots. Rapid industrialization has led to a despoiled environment. Fresh water is contaminated and there is not enough. The North always has been arid. Desert now encroaches on farmland. And the Yellow River, a source of water for 140 million people, is now increasingly saturated with pollutants or sucked dry by farms and factories. Air pollution affects urban areas at immense cost to public health. Such environmental degradation is part of an overall pattern resulting from the speed and intensity of modernization. A rapidly aging population makes Chinese demography unfavorable over the long run. Economic uncertainties abound with severe defects in the financial structure non-performing loans, cronyism, and the opacity of the business regulatory environment, a weak legal structure illustrated by the acceptance of intellectual piracy. Corporate governance and shareholder rights have only a slender tradition. Auditors can be threatened if they produce true figures. China's need for natural resources to feed huge economic growth has established a new global imprint. This new global interest has certainly fed an expanded definition of national security conspicuously on the maritime frontier. To international relations, rapidity of change is always unsettling. China's rapid emergence causes considerable anxiety to its neighbors, especially manifested in simmering territorial disputes over islands in both the East China and South China seas. The 1990 collapse of the Soviet Union 
carried huge implications for China. This meant the end of continental threat for the first time in millennia. With the exception of Islamic separatism, land borders are now relatively secure. The Chinese do not acknowledge that they too were perpetrators of continental imperialism. While oceanic Europe was expanding overseas, imperial China built a vast continental empire to the northwest. This was the largest empire in Chinese history, expanding into the vast, dry steppe lands of Central Asia. Chinese expansion moved east also by including Taiwan, an undeveloped island off the coast, home to Aboriginal peoples. Until the 19th century, Taiwan was not a part of the Chinese world. When the Qing dynasty, the last imperial dynasty, was young and vigorous in the 17th century, it pushed into these vast borderlands from Tibet to Manchuria, greatly increasing the size of China at the expense of local peoples and their cultures. These people now suffer as the government seeks to achieve cultural hegemony over non-Han norms. This effort especially affects the Muslims, specifically an ethnic minority people, the Uyghurs, who are resisting assimilation into the mainstream Han Chinese world. Geographer Halford Mackinder writing at the dawn of the 20th century, saw the geographical pivot of history, his term, to lie in the center of Eurasia. But he did not closely identify that space. The heartland, as he called it, would be fused by railroads, he thought, to form the strategic center of the globe, a key to global dominance but he ignored the world ocean as well as the new world. Today, the Chinese do not. Their reach is farther. China has always been a regional presence, if not a power. Now, for the first time in its history, thanks to salt water, China has rapidly made itself global, part of East Asia's emergence as a major player in world affairs. China has created a network stretching across the world undergirded by seaports, shipping lines, and merchant enterprises. China is now the world's largest commercial ship builder. China floats the world's third largest merchant fleet. China has turned a brown water navy into an oceanic one with the ability to project naval power over far distant waters. Chinese technology reaches to the future in the world of artificial intelligence and microchips. Abroad, unveiled in 2013, 
the Chinese massive Belt and Road Initiative of widespread investment in building refers both to the traditional silk routes stretching across Eurasia and to the maritime roads to Africa and beyond into the Mediterranean and Adriatic. This Chinese projected sphere of activity is not simply transcontinental, but also intercontinental, spanning the seas by including South America, far transcending Mackinder's Eurasia. Is China's wide economic thrust aggressive, as many critics argue? A new form of colonialism? Not territorial, but economic leading to debt traps, lending to those who cannot repay. Defenders would point out that investment often aids the recipients and that it's not coercive, unlike earlier Atlantic imperialism. But uncertainty about China's ultimate intentions gives rise to unease on the part of other powers. Will China's success bring much of the outside world into a tributary network, such as imperial China built in its East Asian region of influence? But imperial China's concept of international relations was generally passive, not active. The barbarian outsider was invited to become part of the Chinese world, but only if he chose to do so. Today, the striking success of China's seaward surge illustrates the great shift of commercial sea power from the Atlantic. Changing global trade routes, reducing travel times and trade costs carries profound impact both for the winners and the losers. Because China has made itself a global presence for the first time in history, this is surely one of the great phenomena of our times, a major chapter in oceanic revolution. The Chinese, keen students of history, firmly believe that China must be a great power. Its new wealth its size, its population, its traditional regional preeminence caused many Chinese to see the splendor of their Ming and earlier era as an appropriate norm for a new China with global reach. How will the world receive political totalitarianism as the Chinese now define and practice it. In authoritarian imperial China, people said, the emperor is high, but always far away. In the totalitarian China of Xi Jinping, the emperor is high, but thanks to contemporary technology, he's always there, right by your side. In the imperial era, there were conflicting points of view. Buddhism and Taoism offered alternatives. The Chinese were largely free to speak, read, or listen 
Now, today, often they are not. In the international world, will China become a model for others? Will Chinese replace English as the leading international language? Will the world follow Chinese practices in international relations? I can't resist asking, will chopsticks replace the knife and fork? These changes seem unlikely, and yet China's enormous economic success should give us pause. What does it say for us? What forms the international pattern will ultimately take remain to be seen, but will inevitably affect us all. This brings us to the end of our journey of exploration through the seas of maritime history. But we have a little bit more. Join us next time for episode 37, Postlude, when John Curtis Perry will add a few words as a summary of our time together. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by Charlotte Allard in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Foray. Goodbye until next time.